Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And today on Future Express, we're talking about what changes under President Trump. We have not podcasted since October of last year, and I'm starting to sound like a broken record because we've apologized for gaps before. So I'm going to move quickly past that point and say on the plus side, during our absence, we finished our graphic novel. Uh, we delivered that to our Kickstarter backers. Yes. By the time you're hearing this podcast, you should probably have received it unless you were in Australia, maybe. Right. And I realize many of our listeners probably weren't involved in that Kickstarter. So this is our graphic novel, Let Go. And hopefully at some point in the near future, it will be properly published and available to our listeners or whoever's interested. So we'll, of course, let you know when that has happened. Since the last time we podcasted, a lot of things have happened, but one big thing that's happened is there was a United States presidential election, and in fact, the, there is now a new president who is Donald Trump. This is not news to anybody. No, uh, you'll know this if you're <laughs> listening to this podcast, unless you have a time machine. We kind of wanted to not discuss this because we're not a political podcast, at least not explicitly, and everybody in the world is already talking about this. But we also kind of felt, well, we couldn't totally ignore it. So we are going to address it. Yeah, I wanted to try to address it from a point of view that made sense um, for our podcast. So I was thinking about this idea of like, all right, this happened. I mean, I'm like a lot of people, uh, somebody who was surprised by this result. I mean, I didn't think it was that likely. And, and yet it happened. I think all I really have to say about it is what changes now in my predictions now that I have this new information and, and, and is there any really meaningful way in which it makes a difference? Like, you know, a lot of things that we talk about on this podcast are not immediate short term things. They're long term trends, right? If we're going to have a problem with automation in the labor force, we're going to have that problem regardless of who's in office. Well, maybe, right. Uh, certainly it seems like these seem like secular trends that go on, timescales that are just like longer than than anybody's political reign right, right. and that was just one example yeah. right right so uh there are a few specific places where this particular leader with his particular um policies and movement behind him uh and and personality does very, very does particular. make a difference well that's the thing it's it is such a black swan event um he is such a an unusual guy and i think whether you support him or not you can't deny that. Okay, so just quickly, a few places where I think this does make a difference. Like one place where it makes a difference is it's a it's a kind of a it's a Brexit equivalent, right? It's a it's going to affect trade and immigration. It's a and, pro-nationalistic, correct? Uh, anti-globalization um, leader, and so for the next four years, that wasn't really on the table in either major party. Before This is a way that Trump is really different from not just Democrats, but Republicans, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so generally, both parties since the 80s have been in this Thatcherite, Tina, you know, globalization uh, 
consensus where everybody, no matter what else they believe, believes that globalization is good. And people who have economics backgrounds tend to agree with that general assessment. Um, Traditionally, there's been some resistance to that on the left. Right, right, and and a little bit on the far right as well. But neither of those groups has generally had any power in the in the parties, um, not really. Right, and and so you know, Democrats passed NAFTA, and Republicans did free trade with a bunch of countries as well, both under W and before Clinton in the eighties. So this uh, this has been a kind of bipartisan consensus in American politics for my whole life, basically. And now there is going to be. I think some fallout from the fact that we're going to have fewer immigrants coming into the country and uh, uh, less trade with other countries. Um, well, and you can say that this somewhat seems like a bigger trend than just the U.S. Obviously, you mentioned Brexit, right. but it, it's so we're not just talking about U.S. politics here. That's right. Uh, if if it does become a global trend, which I mean, it's already start, starting to be, you can imagine it's going to spread to other developed countries. Uh, and there's going to be more isolationism. And that should be bad, if economics is right, for the whole world. It should be bad for GDP growth and innovation worldwide. Because it's just fewer people engaging in markets, less competitive activity, more protection. And, you know, long term, that should be a, a, a net loss. Now, one, one of the things about this is the rhetoric behind this stuff is mobilizing people and creating these populist movements, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, do the economic power centers actually want this or benefit from it? Traditionally, again, you would think they would benefit from more globalized free trade world. That has been the um, the assumption. Yeah. But, you know, if you just take a big picture view, then, you know, the arbitrage potential of having, you know, little nations with walls around them and uh, protectionism and so on also would benefit some people, right? Maybe neither system is necessarily better for economic power centers in general, right? Maybe they benefit different groups. Right, right. And they can probably adapt, I would imagine. Right. So, like, I would have assumed in the past that, like, we're just going to continue to see globalization because that's just going to be financially best for the people that have the most control over things. Right. But they might just, they might do just fine, (laughs) In a in a, <laughs> right. in a world that's you know divided up uh, more he- heavily into separate nations, I think in the U.S. anyway, it's going to create some very odd winners and losers. Right, you would expect that that would mean lower GDP in America, and if it becomes a global trend, you'd expect it to mean lower GDP for the world. Now, uh, rich people might still do fine, as you're saying, because they can figure out ways to either arbitrage or profit inside their countries. Um, certainly there was rich people before there was free trade. So I have no reason to believe that's not going to work. All you have to do to be rich, remember, is be richer than your neighbors. It's it's totally relative. So right. I think, you know, I don't think these people will be fine. Um, I think there are some places that are particularly well poised to pick up slack growth if America slacks on its own and somehow the rest of the world doesn't follow trend. Uh, China in particular, India as well are well poised to do well if mm-hmm. we pull out of global markets because we're being uh, in a trade war. And uh, so it's possible that this benefits China, which would be uh, deeply ironic given Trump's positions on China. Um, and it's possible that this uh, hurts just generally 
all innovation and all growth and um, all wealth creation throughout the world. But I don't know that we have much. I couldn't find any kind of reasonable estimate of like how much. Right. And I don't think anyone knows. I, I, I think this is just, you know, this is a, an experiment on a scale we've never run at a time period we've never been in. And we really don't know. I mean, we've said in the past that we don't think you can really slow down that significantly technological progress, but this could be some kind of mild slowdown. Uh, I don't know how you would it could, quantify could, that. It could significantly slow down the part of the process that's getting new products to a worldwide audience. I, You know, a lot of other parts of the chain, I don't know how you slow them down, m- minus, you know, a terrible war that kills everybody. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, if you want to have a, you know, a firm that assembles, you know, the best talent as they like to do in Silicon Valley, for example, right. where they're very opposed to at least the immigration policies, right. uh, this puts some barricades up there to just assembling the best it, people. It does, but multinational companies still exist right? and you can still hire people in other countries. Yeah. Like I, I kind of feel like the idea that you can reign in these multinational corporations at this point is naive. And GDP growth may go down. Innovation writ large may go down. I don't think high technology growth, like I don't think Intel's going to stop making better chips because of this. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I just don't think this can atta- affect that at all, actually. So, yeah, I don't think this really changes the big picture very much with growth. No. I mean, it just, it could maybe. I think it's, it's going to hurt people in the sense that like people who could have benefited from a product maybe in a foreign country somewhere aren't going to. And as a result, they're not going to make as much wealth in their life as they would have. But I, I don't think it's going to be uh, something that like invalidates my ideas about what's coming in the future. And of course, none of this might even happen. This is all if they do what they say they're going to do. Right. Which, as we, I think, know uh, two weeks into this presidency, they are going to try. We don't know that they're going to succeed. They are so far the most incompetent uh, uh, political operators I've ever seen. Um, but they certainly are not. Uh, to be taken un, you know, unliterally or whatever. They mean what they say. It's pretty clear at this point. Despite what Peter Thiel may have claimed. Exactly. I mean, it's pretty clear that they mean exactly what they say. They just don't necessarily have the uh, the levers of power or the competence to get it done. So we'll see. Um, another thing that's going to definitely happen is uh, we're going to have high deficits during this period, which uh, I've seen a lot of progressives complaining about which i think is stupid um because borrowing costs are low and deficits are and our economy is not great i think deficits are good i think we need to get over this ross perot sold nonsense. Yeah, no one's ever explained to me why deficits are bad well ross perot sold it to the american people in the 90s with the image of you know you're putting debts on your grandchildren which in a very strict sense is true but those debts are also worth a lot less then the money's worth now because inflation. Uh, so debts get lower over time. Plus, we're the country with all the you know nuclear bombs. We're the safe currency of the world. The world currency the world wants to store safe currency with us. That makes our borrowing costs very low. So if we think we can get any kind of decent return out of something, it just makes good economic sense for us to borrow. Um, Plus, when uh, the singularity happens, the robots will pay off all our debts for us. Exactly. Well, definitely, I think... Uh, if, <laughs> I'm being a little facetious. If we get a but... technological jump on the scale of the singularity, it will change the value of money in an extreme way. Right. I mean, there's some truth so, in that, the sense that if you believe there will be some major, major progress within the next hundred years, like, well, like Kurzweil seemed to think, then... 
Well, like if our country could do a hundred billion dollar moonshot that resulted in human level AI, let's say, let's say we did an Apollo project for human level AI and we gave it a hundred billion dollars, which we borrowed all of. It'd be worth every penny of that if it worked. If it failed, it'd be a terrible waste of a hundred billion dollars, right? But if it succeeded, um, we would definitely get a hundred billion dollars worth of value out of it very quickly, right? So there is a there is a cost at which things like that make sense, and obviously it's complicated, you know, um, to figure out when you're supposed to put that money in and when you're supposed to wait for for the conditions to get better. I don't know, but. I, it's obvious that Trump's going to cut taxes like every Republican does. He's going to have to pay for this stuff with, with deficits. Okay, so the big thing with Trump and, and other people wrote about this is the high variance factor, right? Yeah, this is the first thing that struck me. Yeah, unpredictable like, guy. It's, it's higher. Yeah, somebody with a lot of power in the world that's extremely unpredictable. And so just any predictions you make have to add, you know, a little extra uncertainty factor. Yeah. 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 And this is, I think the, the scariest thing and the most, the, the way that I'm making the biggest update to my previous thoughts. Yeah. This is the thing I think that's, that makes, so I think, the uh, biggest deal. you know, a, a serious species ending event, like a nuclear war is more likely today. Not because I think Donald Trump wants a nuclear war. I actually don't. I think he's isolationist in, in temperament, but he, is so volatile and easily annoyed and baited and that's what that's what makes and he's so powerful and that's what makes me so worried about well and his he's explicitly you know expressed an interest in reorganizing you know international alliances yes which anytime you reconfigure things to a new equilibrium that's that's usually that's a moment right of, before you get a world war. Right? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it just seems like that's a very volatile moment. I yeah. mean, who knows? Maybe the new equilibrium is even is better. But in that transition, uh, there's potentially power vacuums and, uh, you know, uncertainty. Um, I mean, we're, you know, he's talking about essentially transforming the international order from where it's been since roughly World War II. Yes. To something new. And so I... Yeah, and 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 weirdly reminiscent of the political change that happens in 1984, right? Like uh, we have this three-pole world right now. We have China and Russia and America, and those are the countries that have gigantic amounts of land and nuclear weapons. So yeah, and he wants to change our current strategy of engagement with China and estrangement of Russia to the opposite. Right. Um, Russia's in, China's out. Yeah. Which which is exactly what they do in 1984 but and it's you know there's something terribly frightening about that because in the process of getting a new ally and uh creating a new enemy both of whom are nuclear armed (laughs) something bad could happen and before now i would have said the greatest chance of nuclear war by far was india pakistan now i would say that's still the greatest chance but that the second chance is some version of China, Russia, United States, uh, and it the 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 likelihood of that has gone up in my mind. Now, as disturbing as this sounds, and it is, I mean, one thing that hasn't changed is the sort of technological realities of nuclear weapons, right? Which yes, which like they're still pretty unusable unless you're insane. <laughs> I mean, that was the biggest game changer. I mean, and so <laughs> yeah, to some extent, we're going to find out how much you know alliances and and this world order that we've had really matter and how much, you know, the relative piece that we've had is just 
due to the fact that nuclear weapons exist and no right. sane person wants to use them. Right, right, right. Uh, so if that holds, then we could have pretty dramatic shakeups and still the world will remain intact. Right, and that's what we have to all hope for, basically, yeah. because the alternative is is horrible. Yeah, I mean, he's said some things about restarting arms races with Russia, which are are terrifying. And uh, he said things like you mentioned about political alliances getting renegotiated, which is terrifying. I mean, I don't think, yeah, I don't think Trump is a madman, and I don't think he intends to start a war, um, but. I could see the things that he's saying and his just general uh, unpredictability being bad for serious species-ending events, as well as for, you know, everyday um, outrages on the news sort of thing, you know, like just crazy stuff he says or does on the news, which uh, which I try to not pay too much attention to as much as I can. The one domestic thing that I think is sort of different and interesting and is it's it's definitely in a continuation of something that's been happening. Um, but I feel like the first two weeks of this administration have been an example of like a government by show where most of what he's done has no practical effect whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It's pure um, theater. And yeah, do you want to explain that? So some of the executive orders, for example, yeah, don't have so much binding power. Obviously the immigration one is a, is a huge, uh, the travel ban, Muslim ban, whatever you call that, that is a huge exception and that's going through the courts now. And we're so far, we're seeing our, our institutional checks and balances basically work as intended. And they're sort of working out whether this is something the government's allowed to do, which is what they're supposed to do when the government does something drastic. Um, all of that has actually been, um, while distressing to a lot of people, including me, I don't, I don't support it at all. Uh, it's, it's been basically operating the way you'd hope it would. Uh, but most of the other things he's done, the uh, de- declaration about the Affordable Care Act, the, the declarations about um, uh, the wall, uh, the Mexican border wall, uh, etc., these have been largely ceremonial. Um, they, For every uh, one regulation, we get rid of two. That's right. the silliest that's a, of them That's all. a principle, but it's it has no actual binding power because right. any regulation that actually gets made is going to either get done through a rules thing or it's going to get done by Congress, and uh, they're under no obligation to follow. I mean, that's just something they're supposed to take into consideration. It's not... Uh, it doesn't really have any force, and the... Uh, you know, to the greatest extent allowable by law is in several of the other ones, which basically just means this is a principle uh, to approach law with, but um, you still have to do whatever's in the law. So it hasn't changed anything about the law. So it hasn't changed anything about how things are running. Um, You know, and the president has authority to interpret laws as he executes them. That's sort of part of what the job is. So these executive orders are also not necessary. He could have just told the people working for him, hey, you know, look for loopholes, <laughs> you know, and, and they would have the same exact force. But he, he's doing it on purpose this way, because I imagine most of the people who, you know, are low information, who are out there in the world, like just most voters, they all probably think he's already repealed Obamacare, <laughs> you know? I mean, he, he said he did, and he went on TV and said he did, and why would they think otherwise? I mean, it took me an hour of reading to figure it out. 
Right. He, or at the very least, he looks active. He looks like the guy who gets stuff done. Which worst is what worst he case wants. scenario, right. It looks, he, he looks like he's doing things. Exactly. So I, I think this government by show is going to work really well for him. I think it's not going to actually do anything. But it's going to make him seem very active. Actually, to the extent that he screwed up, he actually did something with one of them. Right. Right? If, yes. the, if the ban had done nothing, <laughs> right. he'd be probably in better shape. He had just declared extreme vetting, and that had meant nothing. Because we already had vetting of refugees? Because like there's he just, no words. That, yeah. Those words have no meaning. Then I think, actually, everybody would be happy. Right. I mean, there'd be people outside being like, don't extreme vet. But like, as long as people are coming through the turnstiles and getting out, not being detained at the airport... I think all the protesters go home, you know, like, and I think in general, he's being protected a little bit by this strategy, because the more he does nothing and says he's doing things, I think the more popular he's going to be. His ideas, his policies, I think are going to harm the very people who support him. And uh, the more he does them, the more they're going to be forced to realize that. Um, Whereas if he just says he does them, I don't see how he goes wrong, because nobody has time to check i i don't have time to check and i you know and i'm 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 interested in these things so i i think that's uh terrifying not just for what it does in the next four or eight years while trump is president but it seems to me like once people realize this no politician will ever govern any other way well it's also i think what cynically people already think of government is that a lot of it is sort of a just a show just theater I think that's, you know, one of the reasons, you know, some people might have even justified voting for him is like, oh, he's not really going to do any of these things. Right. So, uh, I mean, it's a it's a self it's a positive feedback loop to where, like, that's what people expect. And so that's what he delivers. And it's like it I guess it's part of a longer term trend of, you know, losing respect for government and um, government in turn not feeling it has to do anything at all sure well Um, and the parliamentary side of government has always had a certain grandstanding aspect to it because there's always people who don't have the power to do anything but they do have the power to speak or something so they'll they'll make a speech you know um but it's it's a it's a continuation of a trend but it's still a little unusual for the executive to be so much about show and less about doing things and doesn't this mostly only mostly a a congressional um tactic usually right right um but i think this does uh dovetail right into one uh prior of mine that i have not changed in the face of trump which we've talked about briefly before on this podcast which is this idea that um because our government structure is so calcified because structural reform is functionally impossible. You'd need three-fourths of states, or you need a constitutional convention, neither of which are likely to happen. Um, We are in a sort of death spiral for the relevance of politics in America. And I I don't know that there's any real way out of it. And I I think, if anything, Trump hastens it, but I don't think he actually changes it much one way or the other. Um, I think that we're polarized and... Uh, there's a lot of gridlock in most of the non-essential functions of government. Basically, nothing happens or things just keep going on exactly the way they were set up whenever there was last an agreement because getting a new agreement would be impossible. And uh, the one place where there's like that Orwellian creep um, is in safety and security, right? So like this is where Trump's 
stuff comes from too is he thinks that to secure the country we need mm-hmm. to have these muslim bands and things and he might get away with it and if he does it's because he's justifying it in terms of national security that's the reason if he ends up getting away with it that he would well and that's the next big update that we would have to make is if we had another sizable terrorist attack you know even half the size of 9-11 right um that completely changes the political calculus around what trump isn't isn't able to do Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, uh, as many people have already written like a, you know, a Reichstag fire or a nine 11 type event, you know, could, could turn, uh, him into a full autocrat because he has those tendencies and it might put the Congress in a position where they could, where they could rubber stamp that. I don't know. I think that the government basically just becomes more and more irrelevant with the big exception of it gets more and more draconian and orwellian in terms of surveillance and security and safety right 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 okay so you i mean i think that's the place where maybe i have to update a little bit i i I always expected that but i think um maybe that dichotomy is going to be stronger even but i also don't think foreign policy becomes uh, I agree with that. I mean, and that that goes back to what you know what we were saying earlier: trade right. policy, immigration policy, as well as uh, you know wars. But I just want to um, say, like right now, we're talking about domestically in terms of what they're able to do. Yes, yes. I think foreign policy. There's always more consensus, and there's always more power in the government. Um, but if we become more isolationist, I guess foreign policy might matter less. I guess I don't know that isolationism is a is a sustainable long-term trend. This feels like a backlash. It feels like a temporary regressive moment where we're going to economically harm ourselves because we're like worried about globalization and then we're going to get over it and start globalizing again. Right. Uh, that's my that's my sense of this is that it, we haven't changed the culture. We've just got Donald Trump in office and he believes this, but like I don't think the next president's going to believe this. I don't think the next president's going to think they have to pretend they believe this to win either. That doesn't seem to be the case. Um, Okay. Well, anyway, so let's move on from there to how does this affect the things that we actually care about and advocate and have talked about on this podcast? Because uh, we do advocate some policies here. We're not a political podcast in the sense that we're not talking about horse race politics, but we do occasionally endorse a policy. And one policy that you and I have uh, unequivocally endorsed is just like funding basic science research, right? Like, I don't know how much we've actually talked is, about this on the show. Okay, maybe we haven't talked about this but enough But you and I on have talked show. about this to each other. But I feel like I can't talk about this enough. I think one of the basic, nonpartisan, obvious things to do is to fund as much basic science research as we can afford because it's obviously not a good investment for companies to do a lot of basic research. They need to have some idea that they're going to make profit off of what they're researching. So they need to be doing later stage stuff. So early stage stuff is always best done by somebody who has no particular reason (laughs) to be funding it, except, you know, they want to show that they gave out all their money at the end of the quarter. Um, So whether that's private charity or whether that's the government or a combination of both, we should be doing lots of of that and uh there's a little bit of worrying news out of the trump administration where you know so far he has sort of silenced the government scientists and uh, administrators of government science and that might just be a pause while they try to you know purge some people they think are disloyal or something which i i think is bad but it might be worse than that right it's it's possible that 
in order to prevent science that promotes uh, viewpoints they don't like. Which mostly we're talking about climate, climate change, change and the oil industry and yeah, yeah, that's mostly what we're talking about. Um, they may they may significantly defund scientific research. I still think it's absolutely horrible to uh, do anything to reduce the amount of science research we do. And and of course, regardless of what it says, I mean that's really important with science. You have to be open to being proven wrong. That's that's the that's the goal in science. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, the support. Uh, funding for basic science research because there's so many positive effects of that over the long term right that you know uh, it's just money well spent uh by the society but um i I think we should address like climate change quickly right i mean at some point we need to do maybe a podcast on just that right okay so let's talk about climate change because of course some people are worried that climate change is going to be much worse under trump and i just don't believe that Okay, I have I maybe agree, but explain explain your uh, point of view. First. Okay, so my point of view is I guess like the Hansonian point of view or something. I'll, I'll credit this to Robin Hanson because I think this is who I'm cribbing from. Uh, that the likelihood of human nations coordinating on the scale necessary to actually arrest climate change in a meaningful way is basically none. It's basically zero, and. Uh, that since that won't happen, all we're really arguing about is like, what's the scale of the change that happens? How bad is it? And how much do we as like a nation contribute? Right? Well, and there, well, there might be um, some effect that policy can have, but it's I think it's marginal compared to the larger economic incentives, right? I mean, you, you, essentially, the fossil fuel industry has investments that are already in place, and they want to make as much money as they possibly can, because they know that those investments days are numbered, you know, eventually, the fossil fuels run out, eventually, renewables do become affordable. Eventually, that transition happens. It's the writing's kind of on the wall for them, but now is the time they want to make as much money as possible, right? Before the well dries up, so to speak. And I feel like those incentives are going to be in place, creating that result in the world, kind of no matter who's in power. Now, I think the Trump administration is particularly favorable sure. to the fossil fuel industry. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, you can imagine there's a spectrum that, let's say Bernie Sanders had become president or something right. and had, uh, this is more radical than anything he even proposed, but let's say that he said, U.S. is going to unilaterally cut our own use of uh, fuel to you know, 20% of its current usage. We're going to make a massive moonshot investment in renewables now. And we're going to impose, you know, intense tariffs on any country that doesn't voluntarily do the same thing. So we're just going to use our market power of like, if you want to sell things in America, you got to work this out and you've got six months to do it. And then this goes into place or something. That's the most extreme thing I can think of if we were going to really use the power of America. Right. But no one was talking about no, that. No, no, no. This is far more radical than what anyone suggested. But let's just say in a magical world where... I mean, that's just the most extreme thing I can think of doing uh, in the opposite direction. Even doing that, I feel like the chance that you're going to convince Africa to not burn coal for the next 20 years, uh, I mean, unless we said we were going to just pay them the difference, unless we were just going to say, well, we will pay you whatever the estimated billions of dollars you'll lose by not burning this stuff. I, I, I don't see how else it could happen. I mean, if I'm, if I'm trying to imagine what's the, you know, like what's the, the, scenario in which climate change is actually arrested at its current amount of change. Well, you would have to encourage Africa to, you know, 
again, you'd have to get these newer technologies online as quickly as possible and encourage them to build their infrastructure around the newer yeah, technologies. Yeah, but you'd have to also pay them to build their infrastructure because they wouldn't have any money with right. which to build you'd it. You'd have to help them. So you'd have to yeah. basically cover the entire cost of it for them. I mean, otherwise they have no incentive to do it. They can just burn coal. You can take it right out of the ground. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that if we were serious about addressing climate change in that way, that would be the kind of drastic measures we'd be discussing. And if you look at the measures that were being discussed on the, you know, uh, mainstream uh, liberal side and the Democratic Party side versus what was being discussed in the Republican Party side, none of that was going to have going to make a difference. And and you can find uh, liberal climate um, journalists who agree with that, and you can find um, conservatives who don't believe in climate science who, who agree with that. That's, no, I, yeah, I, I, I yeah. I, I, so, you know, my feeling about it is, um, yeah, we're probably in for some climate change. It's going to make the world weird. Some, there are going to be winners and losers. It might be very bad or it might not be very bad on net, but certainly going to change things and increase variance and increase risk. Um, but it was going to happen anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I would just, I would add the caveat that I think it's completely reprehensible to have uh so many politicians publicly denying science that's just destructive to society as an example to set but i but i agree with your larger point that the the effect of policy here looks like it would be pretty marginal uh over the long term although the r&d portion right like getting to the alternatives faster yeah right and investing in that that's less partisan that's what bill gates's whole initiative is about Mm -hmm. right and i think that's an area where you could have some impact right i mean more money there would make a difference potentially anyhow moving on i science research is one thing that we advocate that this affects another thing that we've talked about a lot on the show obviously is a, a ubi a basic income and i think we are going to see negative progress along that front with this administration. It seems pretty obvious that Trump is promoting a uh, an antiquated vision, I believe, of uh, work being the method by which you improve the lives of the poor. And he specifically wants to use trade policy to try to increase the amount of manufacturing that happens in this country, thinking that that will lead to more employment. Now, uh, although... I mean, you could apply the same argument here that nobody on the liberal side is moving away from Correct. the work uh, to live Correct. contract either. I agree with that. I, both parties uh, and even the far left, the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party uh, in this last election, all they all uh, ad- adopted that same frame, basically. And it's a frame that I think is bound to fail. Um, I saw a interesting article, um, an academic paper linked off of uh, Slate Star Codex the other day, which I will link on this podcast. And it's dense and it's got a lot of math in it. But basically, they wrote a model to try to tease out um, the actual effect of robots between 1990 and 2007 in the American economy. Mm, yeah, I saw this. And uh, they took into consideration all the things that I would have thought you'd want to take into consideration. I 
can't say how well their model accounts for those things because the math was over my head, but the fact that they mentioned them gave me hope. And they came up with uh, a very real and significant effect um, where the estimate was that uh, when you when you don't account for interzone trading, which complicates matters, I guess, to a point where it's hard to do computation, um, it appears that each robot can replace seven people or pr- produces equivalent downward pressure on their wages. And uh, that's between 1990 and 2007. So that's before the Great Recession and before the last round of innovation. And that's talking about industrial robots, not talking about automation in um, in service jobs. Or yeah, something. yeah. Well, let's stop here for a second, because this is a big deal, right? Because uh, I haven't read this paper yet, but yeah. I've started to see it cited a lot of places. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we've talked about this issue for a long time and we always get stuck at this empirical point where it's like, well, it makes sense, this argument that automation's having an impact, but there's no evidence to show it, right? Right. To show that it's occurred yet. And this purports to be that. So this is empirical data fitted to a model. And then the model is designed to predict certain things and to account for certain things. Is this a paper that came out this year or last year? Yeah, this year, I think very recently. And, uh, and it's in, re- in response to another paper, which I also haven't read, but that is um, one of these papers that's been circling around saying we don't see any evidence. And it uses the same model as those people do. It just uses different data and accounts for things in different ways. So they, they basically started with what they felt was the academic consensus on how to model this stuff. They made some assumptions and they tried to account for things like globalization um, that might be confounding. And they came up with an idea that separate from globalization, separate from other factors, there does not appear to be within zones. And they use these commuting zones, which there are like, these are other economists have broken up the country into commuting zones. It's a part of the academic literature. I don't pretend to completely understand what the reasoning is, but I assume from the name that it has something to do with, you know, they're they're economically connected areas is my guess. They tend to do less trade with areas outside of them than they do within themselves is what I imagine the uh, this means. Um, anyhow, they used these zones, and within the zones, they did not see the expected positive impact elsewhere in the economy. Though they expected to see job losses, they also expected to see more money accruing to the rich people who owned the mean, you know, the capital in that zone. But they didn't see that. So as far as they can tell, the ownership is not always in the same geographic area as the people who are affected by these by these technologies which is just it's exactly what you'd expect to see if technological unemployment were happening you'd expect to see that the gains are accruing to the large financial centers and not to you know the small town owners of businesses or something and uh, so it, 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 it it's it's in no way proof, and the authors even say, like, we need to do lots more research. Here are some places that we didn't look, uh, that you should look. Um, but it's the first thing that's been done that's empirical that seems to show a separate effect from productivity gains, from globalization, from the other kinds of confounding factors that you'd expect to see, that, that actual automation was actually bad for workers in the field, and didn't appear to create 
a commensurate amount of other employment in the same general zone. Uh, Okay. So so, uh, let's, I mean, it's hard to follow this honestly, like without reading the paper, but well, it's hard to follow the paper. It's very technical. Essentially right now, this is not light reading. I I fought my way through about half of this. Okay. But just for our our listeners, I feel like, you know, what we're talking about is a, the first sort of paper that's, you know, it's very highly qualified, obviously, even in the writing of it. Sure. That, you know, starts to show some evidence of this effect and obviously, as we've discussed on the podcast, the dialogue around this issue has grown tremendously. Uh, it seems like skepticism among economists of whether or not technological unemployment is a real thing that we should be worried about is down uh, from yeah, where it was. Yeah, this paper does amusingly start with, like, John Maynard Keynes said. And like, it, it does pages and pages of justifying why, why they should even look into this. Right, right. But this issue is getting more attention. <laughs> mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You know, to the extent that this is maybe the first paper of many and that uh, an empirical case can be built for this, um, that's what's going to change the conversation. And that's what's going to change both the left and the right to talk about it more eventually. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, Donald Trump's model of the world is totally outdated. Uh, but again, I think so was the world that Bernie Sanders was describing. Absolutely. Yes. No, no, nobody was on the right side of this this time. He's been more forceful in, in specifically talking about American manufacturing jobs. Right. As opposed to say service industry, which I think again is, is it's, it's a little more outdated than the others, but nobody I think has really got what I think is a, is a forward thinking uh, approach here. So I don't think uh, we'll see any progress from, even though you might expect some libertarian Trump supporters to be supportive of a UBI if it got rid of some of the agencies that um, currently do welfare. Uh, I, don't, I don't think we're going to see that. I think we're going to see a lot of um, attempts to get people back to work. Uh, but I want to talk about two more things briefly that, that we've advocated that are going to be affected. One is the FCC and the net neutrality thing. So there was some out rage because one of the current FCC commissioners uh, was appointed to be the head um, by Trump, and he is the the one of the current three who is against net neutrality. Mm-hmm. Um, but the bigger issue is that it's a five-member board. So uh, there's only three members right now. If he appoints two more members and both of them are against net neutrality, then we'll, there'll be a three-to-two majority against net neutrality on the board. Um, that hasn't happened yet. And one interesting niggle about the FCC is that uh, one of those two has to be a registered Democrat, um, because stupidly, it's one of these things where they mm-hmm. you can you can't have more than three of either party, um, which is just super dumb. But uh, that's how it works. And uh, uh, so he has to pick one Republican and one Democrat. Uh, of course, there are many Democrats who are against net neutrality. Yeah, that's and not are, hard to find. And there are many Republicans who are for net neutrality. So I think there's actually no guarantee that the people he picks will be against it. The only bad sign is the person that he elevated is against it. Although I want to also point out that that person's a Republican. So uh, he may not have elevated him for that reason. I think we're a little bit premature in saying that, that net neutrality is definitely dead. Um, but it doesn't look good. It doesn't look great. One thing I also want to say about neutrality is that we've basically already lost this fight. We have to remember that we're only even arguing anymore about net neutrality on broadband, on home broadband. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most people get the internet through their cell phones and there is no net neutrality on cell phones and there never has been. So I'm for net neutrality. I think the I, I want to point out that the main reason I'm for it is nothing to do with 
uh, whether, you know, regulation or anything like that. It's an engineering choice. It's that if you take the intelligence out of the middle of the network, you can use the network for more things in the future, which is just a better design. Well, yeah. So in other words, like a lot of the debate around net neutrality is this typical left-right argument of should we regulate it or should we not regulate it? And what you're saying is basically... Well, that frame is wrong. That frame is incorrect, yeah. Because the internet is a regulation. There is no no internet, except there's a law that says what an internet is. And it's it's literally nothing but a regulation. So all you can do is argue about what kind of regulation you want. Do you want one that keeps the owners of the middle of the network from putting intelligence into it? Or do you want a regulation that allows the owners of the middle of the network to put intelligence into it. Or- and we did a podcast on this particular issue that you yeah. can reference. Yeah. Cause it does get a little bit complicated, but yeah. And really just from an engineering point of view, it's just bad. It's a bad choice to put the intelligence inside. You should put the intelligence at the ends where it can be most easily replaced. Right. It's bad. Uh, having a network that is not neutral is simply bad network design. That's my main argument. Yes. Right. And yes. I really feel like, that should not be partisan, and you can completely want lots of competition and, you know, uh, government to get out of your business and still think that. I don't think that it has anything to do with. It sounds like it's the government creating a new regulation for the internet, but it's not. It's just the same regulation that's always created the internet being uh, actually kept the same way it always was. It's really just the small c conservative thing to do to just keep the internet the way it was before because that worked. Uh, that was a good system that allowed us to change from an internet that did text to an internet that does video. And in the future, when we want to change from video to whatever, which we don't know what it is, which is the whole point, we'll be able to change there because we won't have built in a whole bunch of video specific nonsense that's useless in the future. That's basically the whole, the whole argument. And, uh, hopefully that, uh, will not be completely dead, um, in the next FCC, but again, doesn't look good. Um, and truthfully, it's already not that good. It's, that's a pretty, that's a situation where even before we were doing pretty badly. So I'm going to try to not talk much about Donald Trump from now on, on this podcast. That was sort of the point of this is we wanted to address it so that we could move on. I, I, yeah, basically my conclusion here is I'm assuming not a lot of change, higher variability, uh, with regard to nuclear war. But assuming no nuclear war, I think genetic engineering is going to go just as fast under Trump as not. Uh, IT is going to improve just as quickly under Trump as not. AI research will improve just as quickly under Trump as not. I think lower GDP growth in America and perhaps around the world might slow innovation generally in a small way, but I don't think it'll slow it in a big way because I think the rest of the world eats that. You know, if, if we don't do it, China does it, is my opinion about this stuff. There's enough... There are enough developed places in the world now. Um, they will eat our lunch if we let them. <laughs> it's my, my my feeling. I think it's 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 ours to lose, and if we screw it up, somebody else will do it. But I really don't think the world is gonna is gonna change that much about this. It just seems to me like you know a run of the mill political defeat for my my political tribe, and I feel bad about it. And that's that. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so going forward uh, in this podcast, I'm going to try to just not not talk about it <laughs> unless it's uh, unless it's something we feel we have to address, and uh, we'll keep putting our eyes, you know, further out beyond the next four or eight years and into, you know, what the next realm 
of uh, technological change will look like. It's good to be back. Thanks so much for listening. And uh, until next time, I'm Ted Cover. I'm John Perry. And you've been listening to Review the Future. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.